everyone, and welcome to episode 699 of Longbox Heroes, the Lamborghini of comic book podcasts. Joe and Todd here. Todd, hello. How are you? I'm doing great. Feel great. Ready to do another podcast? No, well, another podcast, yes. Uh, but as you're listening to this, I am on vacation. Um, I always hate not having a show when we're gone. When I'm gone, it doesn't happen very often, you know? Um mm-hmm. I know there's no After Dark this week, but, like, you know, the, af- the After Dark's the messing around, the fun show, right? <laughs> we have another saying for it, but we can't do it here. Yeah, go listen to go listen to what At Odds is this week, mm-hmm. and what Adam calls At Odds this week is what we call After Dark. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Uh, it's not a play. Ours isn't a playground, though. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> Um, but again, we have a show for you this week. Obviously, uh, we don't have any news because this is being pre-recorded. Uh, but we do have, uh, information about conventions happening this week. Uh, the return of preview review where we were graciously offered by the publisher Mad Cave, uh, the chance to review a book that doesn't come out for another two months and a book that's very near and dear to, uh, my heart, uh, what we're looking forward to coming out next week. Uh, Todd and Joe have issues, of course, talking about Secret Six, Issue 2. And uh, I got a chance to sit down with our good friend Becky and kind of uh, pick her brain a little bit and uh, talk to her about uh, her affinity for the Lois Lane comics, the romance comics, that sort of thing. And at the very end of the episode, we're going to throw all the previous My Walk Down Lois Lane's uh, so you got them all in one spot there for yourself. Uh, you know, they've been scattered throughout. We've done this in the past where we talked about different TV shows and stuff where we do like the master cut of everything together as one shot. And uh, Todd had mentioned to me moons ago saying like, hey, we better do this for the uh, my walk down Lois Lanes. I got a hunch. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, yeah, I was on it before everybody else was. So that's right. Todd is definitely on it, if you will. <laughs> there you go. So, uh, this weekend is Emerald City Comic Con. This, uh, in my opinion, is the kickoff to big convention season. I would Uh, agree. Yeah, this is one of those conventions that I would love to get a chance to go to. Uh, One day I will, when I'm allowed to leave the house. More often than not, as I say this as I'm on vacation currently. Mm-hmm. Um, but a, a vacation of my own decision. Uh, I think going out to the, the Pacific Northwest would be interesting. It'd be cool. And to go out there for a, a big convention like this. And like I said, this is a big convention. It does lean a little bit heavier on uh, creators, comic book folks, which is the stuff that we sort of like. Uh, Chris or uh, uh, Jimmy and Amanda, uh, Jimmy Palmiotti, Amanda Connor are going to be there. Brian Michael Bendis is going to be there. Chip Zdarsky is going to be there. Kevin McGuire is going to be there. Kieran Gillen, Mark Russell, Steve Lieber, Terry Dodson, Todd Knock. A lot of folks in comics are located in the greater Pacific Northwest area. So it's an easy con for the, them to get to, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, on the media guest side, they have Captain America himself and uh, also the Human Torch. K- Chris Evans is going to be there. Right. That's a get, man. That's a huge get. Uh, Jody Whittaker is going to be there. She was the doctor. I would love to meet her. And Christina Ricci is going to be there. Hit me up, Christina. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, Todd's not allowed to go there now. 
Oh, that's right. Legally, I'm obligated to tell you I'm not allowed to come in the building. Yes. Um, so, of course, the links for that will be in the show notes, um, you know, along with everything else here, information about the soon-to-be-named network at soon-to-be-named-network.com, soon-to-be-named-network.tumblr.com. Uh, anytime any of the shows go live, uh, you can certainly find them at their own individual websites. You can find them at their own individual podcatchers, however you get your podcasts. All podcasts are required to be on YouTube now, which I don't like, but it is what it is. Um, and that includes, of course, this show, Longbox Heroes After Dark, Final Wrestling Place, At Odds with Wrestling, We Need Wrestling, Puzzle Warriors 3, Profane Arguments, Wings on Wings, Porch Talk, Hayabusi, and I think that's everything? I believe so. Yeah, I try to do it from memory every week. I don't want to have it written down. You would think after however many episodes that we've been doing this, I would remember everything, but I don't. Uh, be sure to check out uh, some of our friends and their ventures in and around the internet, uh, including Mike Sterling's blog over at ProgressiveRuin.com, our good friend Kevin's blog over at HellionsTeam.com, Rick Williams' The Chop Shop at FreeKarateChops.StoreEnvy.com. He does like all these cool like little resin, glow-in-the-dark. Uh, he does stat. He does like uh, pins and he does stickers, all sorts of stuff. Sci-fi, fantasy, wrestling-themed stuff. It's really cool stuff. Uh, Rick is a good guy. Jason Sandberg, also a good guy. Go check out his book, self-published book, Jupiter, over at his Indiegogo. Uh, Chris Runt, also another good guy. Go check out his self-published book, at fortressofcomicnews.com. Uh, Davey of the band Cave People, also a good guy. Go check out his books, Mending and Keeper. Uh, one sold out print-wise. Everything is available digitally over at his site, cavedomaincomics.com. And of course, if you do not have a comic book store in your area, or you do not have a good comic book store in your area, let our store Comics on the Green be your store. As many of you are listening to this, they're probably already accepting their award for the retailer appreciation thing from Image. Right. Probably have the medallion hanging right now. Right. Probably pawning it off to me already so I could pawn it off to somebody else who's really into challenge coins. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have the shop's uh, Facebook page linked up because that's where Dave is most active on social media. When the books come in Tuesdays and Wednesdays, because that's the world that we live in with comic books these days, uh, whenever there's going to be delays for weather or other related incidents, where the latest and greatest books and time to pre-order them is, uh, you can find it all there, one stop. They do a better job than we do when it comes to this sort of stuff, because that's Dave's job. He's a retailer. He's got to make the money by selling all these uh, funny books to all of us, right? Yep. Uh, so all of that is in the show notes to every single one of these episodes. Uh, now, I guess we're going to get into our uh, preview review, where we're going to be talking about the Mad Cave Dick Tracy book that is coming out in April, uh, written by Alex Segura and Michael Moraci, with art by Geraldo Borges. Yep. Um, they also have a bunch of uh, creative consultants involved, etc., etc. The final order cutoff date is March 25th. We'll give you another ping when it gets a little bit closer to that. Um, it is an ongoing series. I didn't see it solicited in May's solicitation. So, you know, I'm not really sure what the deal is there. But 
why am I worried about issue two when we got issue one to talk about? Right. Todd. Um, yep. So basically, uh, at the beginning of the thing, in a diner, these two characters are meeting. One is a alderman named Emil uh, Trueheart, and then the other is a reporter. And he, he basically, Emil has you know a guilty conscience. He wants to to give the story to somebody, but in it, <clears throat> they end up talking, and he's like, "Oh, they found me!" And somebody comes in and just with a Tommy gun, uh, basically kills everybody in the diner. Um, and you know, now we have a murder case. So the cops are there trying to figure stuff out. And then we get, you know, the lead of our story and his name, you know, is Dick Tracy and he shows up and he starts doing the like amazing detective stuff as they're pointing out this and that he's contradicting them kind of being like, that doesn't make any sense. And this is why, which, you know, makes a great detective story along the way. Um, uh, Trueheart's daughter comes in and that's Tess and she's, you know, wants to know what's going on and she ends up having the conversation with Dick Tracy, um, you know, showing what kind of character she is. Dick goes back to, to, you know, to, to mull over things and he ends up having a breakfast. He doesn't eat so much with what was it? The chief of police kind of a deal and, you know, discussing things that are going on. And I like in this that, this book is very like hard edged for like the crime that goes on, but yes. then as we get to see more of Dick Tracy, he's the very like, and I use this in black and white. He's the very, and I don't want to say naive, but he has that there's good and there's evil, like, and that's it. And I'm going to, you know, snuff it out. It's very naive, but great for this character. So we get that like, uh, newspaper strip version of, of dick tracy but the world around him isn't that you know fun loving you know kind of you know early era stuff but as that goes on you know tess takes it under her wing to look into this and she gets you know run afoul of some, some people who were involved they meet up dick and tess and they start trying to to figure out we start to see more of the, like the dick tracy rogues gallery uh, another thing that I like about this is we see a flat top at one point and he's not, you know, I don't think they're going to go with like the grossly over exaggerated versions of the villains. Like we see mumbles and all right, he does mumble, but I don't think we're going super grotesque on some of these. And I like that. And the other thing that I really love about this book and, you know, I, is the fact that it's set where it is. And then the artist and the colorist took a page out of, to me, Jeff Johns and uh, Scott Collins' Flash, where in the, that run of the Flash, the only red that was ever used was for the Flash. There was no red cars. There was no red signs and buildings. So whenever the Flash showed up, he stood out. He was like front and center. You're like, oh, I don't see red often. So that's it. I feel they're doing the same thing with yellow and Dick Tracy. The only yellow thing that I can find in this book is Dick Tracy's like hat and jacket. And it makes him pop in the, in the book. So I really like that. I, I didn't know how I was going to feel about this book, but in the end, I really enjoyed like the two different like attitudes of the main character and the world around him and the color and the look and the art. Um, I, I really enjoyed this Dick Tracy number one. Yeah, um, I'm with you. You know, obviously, if you, you know, famously, I'm a Dick Tracy fan, but my touchstone for Dick Tracy is the Warren Beatty movie. I will admit I am woefully ignorant of all the other Dick Tracy media. The only Dick Tracy media that I know and love is the Warren Beatty movie. And this is a series 
a comic book series that they have been trying to get out multiple times and there's been rights issues and all sorts of things like that. And I'm so happy to see this book come out. And I will say this, the feel that I get from this, and again, is this maybe heaping a little bit too much praise in the book, but it definitely felt like Gotham Central to me. Dick (sighs) Tracy is young Jim Gordon the look, the feel, where, like, everything else pops. Now, granted, you know, we don't get the full rogues gallery. You mentioned, Todd, we don't get the grotesqueness of everything. It is definitely a crime book. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the the benchmark for crime books is Gotham Central. And that's just what I'm going to go to. It's issue one. Is this going to be Gotham Central? Uh, no. It could be. Um, if they stay on this path and they keep it as a straight book where they don't go goofy. And you mentioned about the color palettes that they use, how, you know, the yellow on Dick Tracy pops where the movie, you know, they, they they took it literally as like a, it's a comic strip. So we can only use these six colors and those are the only things that we could do. And it made it look silly. Right. And mm-hmm. Dick Tracy in the yellow does not look silly in this book. You know, especially in his first scene where he shows up and the light is shining behind him. and The upshot, yep. Yeah, you know, and it's a great shot, too, where it's it's a thing that I'm a sucker for, like, especially when it happens in the cover of a book, but if it happens in the book itself, when a character says another character's name and in the word balloon, the, the dialogue for them is that character's corporate logo. Yeah, it's the font that they use kind of in the yeah. Um, you know, and, and they do a really good job of establishing what this world is, the way that the crime works. And I definitely think that this is like a relatively new to the force, at least new to the beat. You have those two cops that kind of give you Dick Tracy's backstory. And that's really all you need to know. You don't need to go back to the old King features. You don't need to watch the Warren Beatty movie or whatever it is. And the other thing about it is this is a great first issue as well. You get yeah. a complete story and you get enough, not so much of a cliffhanger per se, no spoilers for a book that doesn't come out for another two months, but you get enough of what the mystery is and that it's compelling enough and that you want to see our characters succeed mm-hmm. and figure out what it is. I, I mentioned it before and you mentioned it to reiterate the fact that they're not going into the grotesquerie of the way that they did the Dick Tracy villains in the Warren Beatty movie is great. Um, the other thing that kind of shocked me was that there's a swear in this book. I forgot about that, but yeah. Yes, there's a swear. And I'm like, I clutched my pearls, but I, I'm like, oh my goodness, they're swearing in a Dick Tracy book. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But again, I, I know you wanted to jump on me when I said Gotham Central, but go ahead. No, I see to me and I know you is Gotham Central good. Yes. It, one it, of the greatest, you know, like gold DC, standard. Yeah. Gold standard. But crime book, it would maybe be in my top two, maybe top three. Mm-hmm. Um, by the same writer, I think criminal is the best crime book out there. Okay. Uh, that, that's just me, no slouch in, in, uh, Gotham central. And then if you wanted to put the best of the best of sin city, I'd be okay with that too. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. 
of the of the two, Gotham Central might be three. But this is the book that that's most like because obviously yes. maybe we have a corrupt government, uh, or not a, like corrupt cops, corrupt you know people in higher places because the guys you know coming to stooge off some information about the government. Um, so yeah, like maybe Dick Trace is gonna have to clean up the police force. We don't know. Maybe the police force is all clean. These are all questions we. We could find out, and I'm interested to find yes. out. So, yes, we get that thing. I don't know why my mind immediately was like, oh, I got to shoot down Joe here on the on the book. But like you said, it's the mo- the one that it's most like. So. It's one of those things where it's just what comes, and you make great suggestions. But I definitely think a book like Criminal and a book like Sin City have kind of transcended crime, where they're their own genre in and of themselves. Okay. If that makes sense. Like, I don't think of, like, even though it's in the title, I don't think of criminal as a crime book. I think of criminal as criminal. I don't think it's Sin City as a crime book, even though it is. I think of it as Sin City. It's transcended itself. Gotham City is, you know, it was, like, probably when it was coming out, like, the sixth or seventh best bat-selling title. But Mm -hmm. it was probably the best bat-selling title at that time just because of the creative team on it. And I think they got a great mix on the creative team, the look, the feel, and everything else like that. You mentioned, you know, this obviously takes place, you know, I would assume like in the 30s or 40s. Um, But they don't beat you over the head with the old stuff. We're not being hit over the head with the gadgets. We're not being hit over the head with all the other hokey things that people could and have fallen into the traps to with the Dick Tracy thing and stripped away from whatever your opinions of Dick Tracy is. It's a great crime book. Oh, yeah, it definitely is. Yeah. Uh, So, like I said, thank you uh, to Mad Cave for letting us do a review of this. Um, You know, definitely check this book out when it comes out at the end of April. The final order cutoff for it is the end of March. We'll give you another reminder when it gets a little bit closer to that. If you haven't ordered it already, I've already ordered it. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to issue two already. This is one of those things where I like when we get a chance to do a preview review. Mm-hmm. But then it's like when the book comes out, it's like, no, I already read it. I wanted to read it again. Right. And I I'm, Will it be the book you're looking forward to most that week now? Or? <laughs> well, no, because I've already read it. And I try to take a little sure, bit away. That would have been my layup, Joe. I yeah. lose a layup because of this. Oh. It upsets right. me. Hopefully Saga comes out the same week. Oh, my goodness. He comes out. I, I <laughs> will say, you know, looking at the image stuff, and I could pull up the spreadsheet for what is scheduled for that week and tentatively scheduled for that week in April, and I can give you an idea. It's not Saga, though. Saga has not been resolicited anytime soon. But uh, And I would also like to say that the year of the comic takes place is 1947, which threw me off because I thought it would have been way earlier. Yeah, me too, but that's cool. Gotcha. Uh, so that's what we read this week. Let's get into what we're looking forward to coming out this week. Uh, Todd and I attempt to guess what the other is most looking forward to coming out this week. Um, we put up the poll post uh, every Tuesday at noon Eastern time. to link to a link to all the books that are coming out this week, Before Warned, Before Armed. Todd is currently in the lead over me with one correct guess. And Todd, I have to ask you, looking at your list for what's coming out this week. Right. What is Canary number three? Canary number three is, I can't think, it's that Dan Pusain book, I think, that was the Western where there was a mine and there was a problem and like maybe some, they dug down too far and were possessed. It was a Kickstarter book. Okay. But 
this is the individual issues. And I had forgotten that this was coming out. So I was picking it up after what's the word I'm looking for. Like the list would come and I saw it on the shelf at the shop and I was like, Oh, well we already did the show. So I can't tell them I'm getting issue one. If that makes any sense. Yeah. It's, I was confused because it's issue three and this is the first time that I've seen it pop up and I, I got thrown. I, I don't know. Maybe Canary two was on my list, but I know one never was. So, okay. Uh, I'm going to guess the book that you're most looking forward to coming out this week. And again, this shot in the dark is Avengers twilight. Number three. It is Avengers twilight. Number three, cool. just because it's something different. Like, you know, we picked, uh, not, not to pick it, but like, you know, we've been on a, a tear with some of the other books, but, uh, this one is just different. And I like an alternate, like future kind of a deal. And it's been fun. So the, the two issues, and I'm going to guess, is it the, the, also the same book that you're looking forward to the most? Yeah, it's the same book. I'm looking forward gotcha. to Avengers twilight number three. It's been really good. I like the first two issues so far. Um, you know, I, I, I really like Chip Zdarsky's take on this and I'm going to kick myself cause I'm forgetting the name of the artist right now. Um, uh, and I know who Akura, Akuri, Daniel Akua. I, I don't know how to pronounce the last names. So. Okay. Yeah. Daniel Akuna, uh, really like the way that his art is colored and inked in this. You know, we talked about it kind of at length with the talking about the previous issues of this, but yeah, that's the one I'm looking forward to coming out this week. Cool beans. So while you're over at, uh, longboxheroes.com, be sure to check out all the other, uh, episodes of this show that we've done uh, also after dark no after dark this week again I'm on vacation um, I don't know this might go up early on the Patreon for Patreon folks I don't know we'll see I think that's what I did last time I had this go out on the Patreon early right fair enough uh, but uh, you could also check out uh, what we have been doing here as well for 2024 for Todd and Joe have issues which is Gail Simone's Secret Six. We are in the miniseries, the first miniseries that she did. Um, there was another miniseries, like, what, in the late 60s that, like, had nothing to do with anything? Right. The That was the one, and then it was in. Do you remember? They... Because there was a whole thing with the Secret Six, and there was a Mockingbird, and it was a team, just a random team of people, and they were trying to, they were more like the Challengers or the Unknown, and they were trying to figure out who Mockingbird was, and the, the, the title got canceled before they could ever finish it, and then they redid it the sec- the next time Secret Six appeared anywhere, that version was in, do you remember when Action Comics was weekly? Yes. And they had various little strips. That was where that was the first place I ever found Secret Six. Okay, in that, and then we would jump ahead to Villains United, kind of a deal where the Secret Six were, you know, introduced. But different team, completely different. Other than the Mockingbird thing that that was kind of mentioned, the Villains United, no connection whatsoever. Yes. Um, so I mentioned it in the write-ups on the. Um Todd and Joe have issues. I really like the cover layout for the book. So Uh, good. This issue specifically, but all the issues for this, at least for the first three issues, where they have like those three teaser panels of stuff that goes on in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't do it in issue four, kind of to tip your hand a little bit. Um, They tease a little bit on uh, issues four and, or um, on five and six rather. But um, do they do it on four? Am I just dumb? 
Um, no, they don't do it on four, but that's okay. We're not talking about four right now. We're talking about issue two right now. Same creative team, Gail Simone writing Brad Walker and Jimmy Palmiotti on art. And again, very striking cover. I can't imagine uh, any red-blooded American male or any other country male walking by their comic book stand and seeing that issue and not wanting to see what's going on in there. I I cannot uh, agree more. Yes. Uh, But a a good majority of this, and I forgot to mention it last week when we talked about it, uh, but, you know, I always like in a story like this, like, oh, the book is called Secret Six, right? But the story that it's being told is Six Degrees of Devastation Mm -hmm. is very fun. Uh, I feel that's the sort of pun or wordplay that's right up your alley. Yes. Um, But the main crux of this is... Uh, this issue is, you know, not to say that all the other characters don't get something to do with, because they do. But much of this is scandal. And it's involving scandal getting her hands on Pistolera, the one who took the shot that done blowed up knockout. Mm-hmm. And throughout the course of this issue, we get some pretty, you know, because uh, the comics code is still a thing, right? <laughs> right. This is not like a mature rated book, you know, there's no like T for teen or anything else like that. But like knockout gets like charred up like she's just like a burned corpse in this book for the most part. Right. Right. And it's essentially scandal, you know, one getting the information from Pistolera of who sent all of these folks after the individual members of the six but also her teetering that line of whether or not to go all the way and kill Pistolera. Joe, I have goosebumps from the inner dialogue that Scandal uses through this whole thing where she's basically discussing, like she's talking to Knockout in her head and it's basically like, you know, like, my love, you know, I'm in this room with another woman and I won't lie, it's not the first time. And she's going down, but it's just like, all the stuff and it's about torture and it could be equated to like a relationship too. She like each time we talk about the individual characters, when they all have their moments where we like them. And then we have these moments where each of them is cold blooded. And this is scandals moment to shine as cold blooded. But that's the thing. So, you know, and we're going to kind of go all over the place with this issue, but she has that moment where she has to make that decision of how cold blooded am I going to be Mm -hmm. and Deadshot makes the decision for her which is Um, great which is a great moment it's a great bonding moment with the characters it fits into who Deadshot is and you know you get that moment where Scandal is like grateful because she would have sit there and hemmed and hawed and kicked the tires as I say in regards whether or not to do this, where Deadshot is more matter-of-fact about it. He doesn't have that emotional attachment. He's able to make that separation, and that's how he could show to be a friend to Scandal, right? Yep, and Joe, the whole thing where she comes to him afterwards, and I, we don't usually do all the dog, but she's like, I don't know whether to kiss you or kill you, and he's like, relax, sis, and she calls her sis, do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. And basically goes, and this is the kind of dialogue that I absolutely love. I knew you'd feel bad if you pulled the stopper and let the water drain out, so I did it for you. No big deal. And then other stuff goes on, and then she goes, I think this once, a kiss, Lawton. 
thank you. And she kisses him and he's just like, no sweat, kid. And like the beauty in that, Joe, is that there is no like sexual overtones whatsoever. That is like, because obviously he made the moves on her and she's like, I don't, you know, that's not, I, I don't play for that team kind of a deal. And it's all great. And this is just like, like two killers and or villains who walk the edge, just having a great bonding moment, like you said. And I'm like, you just touch on it and move on. It's not overplayed. It's not underplayed. It's the exact amount of scandal and or dead shot we needed. Right. Whereas on the flip side, we have Ragdoll being assaulted by Ibak. And again, mm-hmm. I'll say character I'm unfamiliar with in the greater DC canon, right? He's a Shazam villain. Okay. And he has, he's basically a, I, the, each of the letters stand for somebody. Um, like, I don't like a, a is a till of the hunt. That one I know. And he gets his powers by saying that, and they're villainous, evil people. And he's just he's just Black Adam with the serial numbers filed off without all the cool Captain Marvel powers. Oh, well, actually, as I'm reading this here, um, and we'll get there, and mm-hmm. I didn't even know that. I didn't even put that together until you said that. So as Ibak is uh, attacking Ragdoll, we get a moment of Ragdoll um, elbow deep down Ibak's throat. Yep, with steak knives. Right, and says, uh, I took the liberty of picking up four very high-quality serrated steak knives, and I dare say I feel some soft tissue here, mere inches above your lower esophageal sphincter, in fact. Mm -hmm. And essentially says, like, let me go, walk away, or I leave these knives in you, right? Mm -hmm. And... You know, obviously, with an arm down your throat, it's difficult to uh, ascertain what the person is saying, yes or no. Um, As Ragdoll makes their escape, says, you know, since you get your abilities from such noted betrayers as Ivan, Borgia, Attila, and Caligula, I don't (laughs) think I'll trust you today. Pumpkin. So that's where the uh, IBAC comes from. Like I said, when I thought that was just Ragdoll being quirky and a freak, right? Nope, nope. And all of that uh, makes sense, you know? I'm glad I can be here to explain, Joe. Yeah, that's what you're here for. Right, and um, the other subplot with uh, with Deadshot being, like, by the, the, the all the people, and he ends up, you know, getting the gun off his wife, who he doesn't wish, like, he's like, why do you even have a gun? Like, they got away, and they're like, ah, we let him get away, because, you know, we're playing by your rules, Lawton, but we're going to kill you. And he gets the gun, and his daughter shows up, because... This is the early stages of the daughters that we get all the way into like Tom Taylor's uh, uh, suicide squad that I love. And he's just like, I'm not going to kill her in front of you. But he ends up doing, he's like, listen, you're going to walk because I'm not going to kill you in front of my kids. But this gun that I have, I'm going to save the bullets, the last two bullets. So it's, it's like no time has passed. It's fresh. And I'm like, oh my God, everybody in this is written so amazingly, Joe. I love it. I love it so much. And I will say, um, and I forget who the, I think it's, it's not the original iteration of them, but it's, I think they're called the Trigger Twins, the two uh, in yellow. Right. I don't think they're the Trigger, trigger Twins, but no, um, I'm, I'm looking up who they are right now. So. Right. You, as you look that up, um, but the other villain that's there is uh, Lady Vic. And I love not only in the Villains United stuff, but also here in Secret Six. 
Gale and Brad Walker using some of those classic Nightwing villains from the Chuck Dixon run. Right. I love the design on Lady Vic. It is so, um, it, it is so, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's so, like, I don't want to, like, ridiculous, but it's just so gaudy. It's so over the top with the jacket and the knives and the big giant bug-eyed visor and the whole thing. But I love it. It's such a great design. Right. I believe that the two characters are Double Dare. There you go. I knew it was Double one dare. or the other. Right. So just getting that out there. So after all of that, Scandal is able to get where uh, their pursuer is. And our team has to go to the Himalayas. And Todd, yet again, we <laughs> get another alternate costume as they go uh, to Cheshire's Lair. Yep. Once again, give me the box set and I will take them, Joe. Yep. And it is revealed here that, of course, Cheshire, we got the tease of it in issue one, that Cheshire was working with uh, Dr. Psycho because obviously uh, the full strength of the society would not go after them. So Dr. Psycho cut his own separate deal. Uh, Cheshire has a temple in the Himalayas with a bunch of monks that are very easily dispatched of by our crew. Uh, but obviously we get that standoff as it was teased in the Villains United series, that even though Cheshire was shot by Deathstroke, she not only survived, but also the child that she was carrying from Catman survived. Right. And they all want to do her in, but, you know, Catman ain't going to let it happen just out of, you know what I mean? Yes. Out of pride, literally. And while that is going on, we have Dr. Psycho making his move to a laid-up-in-the-hospital ragdoll, um, and that does not look good for them. And we did get the reveal of our villain. It's right on the cover of this issue as well, uh, so I got no problems in talking about it, to combat the—or no, it's uh, it's on the next issue. So you know what? I'll wait till next issue before we talk about who the uh, sixth member is for this mission. Okay. Um, cause they, they, they do nothing of consequence other than like, while all of this madness is going on and everything with scandal and the interrogation, they're just really creepy. You mean while all this, this person is going on while a lot of mad stuff is going on? Exactly. There you go. Uh, but yeah, there's another great issue, you know, um, obviously it's a mini series, a little difficult to jump in. It's a book that's, you know, 18 years old. But it feels just as current and modern as anything being published today. Yeah, because it's not bogged down in a lot of what's going on outside the book. You know what I mean? So, right. Like, like we don't know where we're at other than the characters. It's like we haven't mentioned, like, you know, Superman's fighting Doomsday. Or Green Lantern is mad because Coast City is broke, blown up. You know, even though that didn't happen at this time. It's just... Or it takes place... From takes place before Beast World, but during uh, Night Terrors or anything like that. You know? <laughs> right. Ex you're, exactly. You don't have to be bogged down by other continuities. Mm -hmm. And and I've always, you know, been a fan of that. You know, we, we've kind of talked on the main show here before how we've both kind of gotten away from the big company-wide sweeping crossovers but, you know, even in my, you know, earlier fandom, you know, within the first, like, five, ten years of reading stuff, um, I would dip my toe into those big crossovers, but I always liked, like, the ancillary stuff, where, like, here's, like, the C story that's going on in the DC universe, you know? 
Yeah, um, well, usually it's like, and the creators usually have the most fun with characters where DC's like, I yeah, do what you want. Like, I don't yeah. care what you do with, you know, Ragman 3, you know? Yeah. Go crazy. And that's one of the things I like so much about this book. And that's, you know, why it got chosen for our Todd and Joe have issues this year, right? Pretty much. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we'll have next week, we'll be talking about issue three. Mm-hmm. Uh, very simple until we get to that Birds of Prey crossover, and then from there on out, it's more or less straightforward. We'll double up a couple times where it crosses over with other stuff, but again, we're going to get there when we get there. That's still months and months away. Right, and all of it will be in the upcoming Secret... Well, most of it, the first half, will be up in the Secret Six Omnibi, so... Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I, I'm wondering, like it's, it's slated to get released in May, I think mm-hmm. is it's May or June, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder where we're going to be like in the timeline of what we're reading of when the omnibus comes out, you know? Right. And I don't want to be <clears throat> a negative Nelly, but, uh, a lot of times Omnibuy get pushback. I've never bought an like when I bought the Who's Who Omnibuy, when I bought various Justice League International Omnibuy, they say they're coming out this week. Add three months to them. You know what I mean? They they just get pushed back often for some reason. Well, we we've been letting DC slide a little bit with their cancellations of stuff and delays of stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since this is an omnibus that we've both been looking forward to for quite some time. Uh, as the delays are announced, we'll be shouting them from the rooftops, you know? Yeah, no, because I definitely know the last one I got was the question one. And that was supposed to be, it. Just I just got it like two weeks ago, three weeks ago. And that was supposed to be November of last year was the release yeah. date. But anyway. Anyway, uh, while you're over at longboxheroes.com, of course, head over to our store. Get shirts and pins and stickers with our fancy logo on them. Uh, shoot me an email. Shoot me a message in the Discord. We'll work out a deal. I'll get you some stuff. Yep. Um, no tea public sale this week, uh, but the, uh, oh, you know what? I forgot to mention, uh, last week, but I'll mention it here, uh, our eBay affiliate link, mm-hmm. you know, uh, it doesn't do a ton of business, but you know, maybe it's because we don't mention it as much. Uh, this page contains affiliate links for eBay. We may receive a small commission on purchases you make through the site. Uh, you could use this affiliate link anytime you wish and buy anything on eBay and support us at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. But the best way, the most fun way, the most rewarding way to support us is to sign up for the Patreon, patreon.com slash longboxheroes. Uh, as little as a dollar a month, you're going to get two bonus shows from Todd and myself, previewing the past, where we look at 30 years ago, that month's previews catalog, along with the full scans of the previews catalog that we're going to be talking about. Uh, we have comic book oddities where we're looking at movies tv shows canceled shows pilots uh made for tv movies of all sorts of different things pre marvel cinematic universe pre iron man is kind of like the the mendoza line that we kind of chose but sometimes when something is special as madam web comes out we have to break those exceptions right right when the madam web signal goes up we answer the call joe that's right uh five dollars a month is going to get you those bonus shows two weeks before everyone else uh, it's going to get you after dark two days before everyone else and any level that you support us at is going to get you access to the soon to be named network, uh, discord, talk to other listeners of the show, talk to other folks that have shows on the network. Uh, all sorts of folks are there and everyone's like real cool and nice and so forth. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe if you've seen a lot of those folks, not on social media 
a lot lately, it's because they're all over in our Discord, you know? Yeah, one big happy family. Yes. Uh, but right now, um, before we uh, put a bow and close things off, I just want to introduce, I got a chance uh, to sit down with our good friend Becky, who has been nice enough this year to contribute to the show, uh, my walk down Lois Lane, and I got a chance to sit down, like I said, and talk to Becky about her affinity for, her love of, her discovery of, uh, the romance books of the 50s and 40s even, uh, mm-hmm. the Lois Lane comics and that sort of stuff. And then after the interview with Becky, we're going to lay out all the previous My Walk Down Lois Lane. So you got them all in one shot, all back to back to back to back to back. A lot of people really enjoy them. And uh, we want to like make sure everybody has them all in one spot. And it's a way to fill up a show. So there's uh, something in your RSS feed, podcatcher, etc. While I'm uh, jet setting around the world and... Todd is enjoying his week off, right? Right. Maybe while you're on vacation, we give him the best with uh, the walk down Lois Lane. You know what I mean? There you go. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. Uh, so for Todd, this is Joe saying thanks, everyone, for listening. This was episode 699 of Longbox Heroes, and we will see you all here next week. Remember, be a faucet, not a drain. Hey everyone, it's Joe. No Todd this time. He's not allowed to talk to Becky anymore, uh, at least on a recorded thing. But I'm here with Becky of the world famous, now world famous on the show, My Walk Down Lois Lane. And I always feel bad because we always screw up the title of it on the show. Uh, we always say it's Your Walk Down Lois Lane or Walk Down Lois Lane or whatever it is. I hope it's not. No, I think it sounds fine. Somebody came up with it, and it's too funny not to use. Yes. So whoever came up with that, that's a great idea. Thank you. Yes. Uh, But this was just something that, um, you know, it's funny because, you know, one of the Patreon shows that we do is the old previews comics. And Mm -hmm. it was something that just started as a conversation here in the shop. And I think uh, you doing these segments on the show started as a conversation in the shop. So, like, how did you get, and again, I don't want to say obsessed, but, like, (laughs) you're almost known for, like, these sort of comics. So, my personal collection is Catwoman stuff, and I needed our first appearance of Catwoman. And since I need my organs and I don't have enough money to buy a Batman number one, I got a Lois Lane 70, which is the first appearance of the Silver Age Catwoman. And I read them, and they're nuts. And then here at the shop, whenever some old girl comics come in, it's not so much Dave tells me to do them as much as I yell, I want to do them. And it's primarily because I get to look through them. I look at the artwork, read the weird letters pages, look at the funny stories, things like that. So, um, is does Catwoman make any other appearances in Lois Lane, or is that the only one? It's a two-parter. 70 and 71 is a two-parter. Mm-hmm. I really like that because um, Silver Age Catwoman has magic catnip in it. She tricks Lois Lane into committing crimes for her. Superman thinks it's adorable. He gets turned into a cat at some point. He's typing on a typewriter with his little kitty paws. It's fantastic. I remember the story when they did Crisis on Infinite Earth back in, like, 86. One of the reasons why... 
that they did that was they felt like Superman was too powerful. Like Superman was like flying backwards <laughs> around the Earth to turn back time, right? Mm-hmm. And I get that you had to like, eh, you know, make, maybe make him a little less powered. But I feel as though one of the things that we lost is this sort of silliness and goofiness in comic books. You know, before we started recording, we were just talking about Madam Web and how goofy that movie was, but. Do you miss the goofiness of those Silver Age books and like the current day stuff that you read? I kind of do, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I really like the I really like the Silver Age stuff because you can read it and it's most of the time a one and done and you don't feel saddened by it or angry by it. You're just like, "Yep. Lois Lane sure did try to trick Superman into marrying her this week." And it's just fun. Like it's nice fun escapism. And don't get me wrong, I do love modern comics a lot and Stray Dogs made me cry and so did Marvel's Unleashed and there's a lot of really really good indie stuff right now as well as superhero stuff, but I enjoy the nice escapism and the colors and the artwork of a nice Silver Age comic. Now, a lot of this stuff actually uh, isn't reprinted, but some of the stuff is getting, you know, some facsimile editions here and there. Um, do you see maybe, you know, just based on what you're seeing, discussion, the old issues or anything like that? Because I know you, you go and try to find them online as well to fill the collection. Do you think this sort of comic has like any place in today's modern, you know, like could there be a romance comic that's the modern version of this? They've been reprinting some of the old Batman ones. They won't do the Lois Lanes, I think, because they're um, they're a problem in 2024, especially since the early ones, she's so boy crazy and, and things like that. I don't think they would really make stuff like that anymore. They do fun things like Lady Killer and... And you know, love everlasting. Love everlasting is like that too. But love everlasting has like a nice overview. There's something wrong there as it's making fun of the old comic tropes. And I love that comic. I read that comic. And the um, I wish they would reprint some of these Silver Age ones, especially some of the My Loves and the Young Romance, the things that made them popular in the first place. The Charlton ones are not very good. I wouldn't reprint those personally, but (laughs) they're like the Walmart brand of of romance comics. They're weird. Now, I, you know, so obviously we're talking about the Lois Lanes, and, you know, it's essentially a romance comic, and that has led you to the other romance comics. And, you know, two of the episodes that you did for us, the two of the drop-ins that you did, which was, like, the history stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as great as it is to hear you talk about an issue or a story or an overarching thing, um, is there any other, like, interesting history bits that you've discovered in doing your research and looking up the and finding these old books for your own personal collection. I know I submitted another one that's upcoming about the letters pages and the advice columns inside. I do personally love those. I find it hysterical that one of the most notorious advice columns in the romance ones was just a dude purposely trolling the letters pages just to get <laughs> girls to attack him that's really funny to me um i think what else have i found the all the millie the model stuff i found super fascinating and interesting my friend irma is one that i haven't covered yet i have been personally collecting those they are also stanley and they're dan DiCarlo. and stanley had to write joke after joke after joke on the on each page but a lot of readers instead of submitting fashions and things like that like in millie the model they submitted jokes. So there's a lot of jokes in the old Irmas that are credited to the readers that I think is really interesting. And I always just find it so fascinating that this is a, a time in comics, a 
genre of comics that kind of goes unrepresented and has gone on unrepresented for like the last like 30 years almost and you know that's why we enjoy having it be part of our show but then i've been seeing a lot more of it pop up in different places like um a lot of the old books have been going up for like auctions and stuff they are now going for stupid money uh i should have started collecting five years ago (laughs) compared to now because they um they are getting priced out because people are finding out that a lot of the classic Marvel artists did a bunch of the romance. Mm-hmm. Simon and Kirby, for example. Steranko did some of the romance ones. I have those. I purchased that one and then the reprint one that comes out later on. And it was an untapped market that is Golden Age and Silver Age that people are trying to invest in now to end up probably selling down the line, which puts, unfortunately, fans like me out of the market. Well, uh, luckily, a lot of them, you know, are just plentiful because, you know, print runs on a book back then would be in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Mm -hmm. It's just that they're not in great condition. Mm -mm. Um, I guess, is there a book that you have out there, a holy grail book of one of these that either you're like, I needed to complete a collection or I've heard about this one and this is the one that if I get it. It's something. Not whether it's price or there's something that happens in it or it's a turning point in those types of comics. So I have a list. <laughs> I have a list. The two of them that I really, really want is Susie fifty one from Archie. It is a very classic I'll have to show you. It's a very classic cover of her calling the gas company when she got blown up. And Susie is one of those dumb blonde my friend Irma joke kind of comics. <laughs> And then something from 1944 called Scoop Comics number eight. I just want that for the cover. It's a girl that looks like she just woke up first thing in the morning holding a gun in her hand. And I love that cover. And I really need to read what's in there. But I can't find it anywhere to even look inside it. So if you're listening to this and you have, what is it, 1944 Scoop Comics number Scoop Comics number eight. Please send me pictures. I just want to see what the inside looks like. Right. Do scans. Becky doesn't even want the book. Just (laughs) scan the book. I just want to see it. Right. (laughs) Now, um, I'm just trying to think of... um, So, with your search for these books, because I remember back in the day when I was trying to fill holes in collections, I would buy lots on eBay or at comic book conventions of like 20, 30, 40 books because there was two books in there that I needed. Um, Have you found any... Like, have have you gotten into that where there's people selling lots of these books online and you're like, oh, well, there's two or three or four that I need in there and then you just find something undiscovered maybe in a collection like that? I did that for... There's a set of Skyworld ones um, when IP Walding and the people that totally were not Marvel guys pretending to have fake names came together to make Skywolds. They released four romance books and I wanted those so bad that I bought extra stuff just so I could have them and now I have doubles of everything. Because at the time when I was searching for them, issue number four, the last one had sold in 2012 and was nearly impossible to find. So I just took what I could just to try to fill out the four issues, which is nice. So with the stuff that you're reading both for your own personal collection and the stuff that you're reading for the show uh, for us and again you know I mentioned before but we do thank you for contributing every week what do you prefer do you prefer the lowest lanes do you prefer the like who's like or do you just like what's your favorite of what you've read like what's the one like if I could only pick one what's the one I'm gonna stick with it's gotta be Lois I love <laughs> Lois as much as I love my young romance and my my young love and things like that I collect those but the Lois my Lois Lane collection is purely just 
the worst ones, the most offensive ones, the ones with the weirdest covers, the ones that I don't know if I can even cover for the show because they are really not 2024 friendly. Those we, we trust you, you know, obviously uh, no profanity, no vulgarity or no. anything else like that. But, you know, there's only been like two times in the history of like the 10 plus years. Like this is coming out the week before we do our 800th episode, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. Wow. Right. So we've only had like two instances where we had to go back in and like, all right, this person doesn't understand that you're not allowed to swear. And like, just because it's a person's name, you can't say like the most repulsive vulgarity ever but uh free reign if you feel that you you know we need to put a disclaimer on something you know we absolutely will but i definitely think a lot of the people do understand that it's very much of its time yes and everybody tries to collect the lois lane that is the curious black one where she changes race to go undercover the women's liberation movement of the 70s dc took that the wrong way and they they made this issue that was so popular and everybody really loved it and it got a lot of positive feedback so they're like let's do more of them so issue 112 is about the native americans that's just racist like i don't even know how to cover that sensibly without it just sounding like i'm a terrible person for even talking about it and I just want to say, like, all these books that Becky has named, like, she's not, like, she doesn't have a list in front of her. I just stopped in here at the store. She was unprepared. Mm-hmm. She just knows this stuff. Like, <laughs> the, 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 uh, like, I'm, like, there's stuff that I have, like, eh, I get it close when I'm trying to think of something. But the fact that this stuff, you know, is such a part of, like, your comic knowledge, like, I'm jealous. I'll be honest <laughs> with you. Some of it's from working here. It really is. And seeing this stuff, like, all the Millie the Model stuff was because I posted tons and tons of sets of Millie the Model so I had to look through all of them to check for the paper dolls and I got to reading them and really liking them and the same thing happens when we get a collection of romance books in or I did let it, I did Lois Lane ones and I had a lot of fun going through those Lois Lanes and that's how I know issue 5 she's the fattest girl in Metropolis when she weighs like 180 pounds so <laughs> it's a different time it was a much different time but it is fun and, and when you're passionate about collecting comics like I don't know everything about Spider-Man but Dave does and Josh does and I do know a lot about Deadpool because that was the first comic I ever purchased and I have read I think every Deadpool thing ever so I have working knowledge of that as well but it, I think it's because I have a genuine love for them alright well Becky thank you very much for taking time out of your day for this and uh, thank you for your continued work on the show with us yeah not a problem I hope you guys enjoy my Lois Lanes and my random romance knowledge and you have a lot of fun with them because I definitely do we're getting coffee delivered i'm sorry (laughs) take care everyone welcome to my trip down lois lane where i review the best and brightest of the silver age lois lane comics today we're going to start with issue number five it is from 1958 it is my personal favorite and it's called the fattest girl in metropolis so let's dive in It opens with a panel of Superman carrying a Rubenesque woman and complaining to her that he's used to carrying a slim and sunder Lois Lane. Keep in mind, this is the same Silver Age Superman that carries tanks, trains, whatever Jimmy Olsen has accidentally unleashed upon the city this week, whatever Lex Luthor can dream up, but I guess a 200-pound woman's where he draws a line. Lois is driving home one night and she sees a murder. Instead of calling the police and telling them about it, she decides that the assailant is just too average. She couldn't possibly describe him and continues about her merry way. The next day at the newspaper, Perry tells her he needs her to go and review a scientist's new growth ray. 
While there, she's accidentally hit with the growth ray and tells the doctor she feels too tingly, and the doctor tells her, eh, don't worry about it. That's for plants, not for humans. You'll be fine. The next day, she wakes up having gained significant weight, and instead of grabbing a moo-moo and a drinky bird and just having him do the work for you, she decides that if Superman sees her like this, he possibly won't want to marry her and runs out into the street. She finds two women of similar size in a car and asks if she can join them. When she gets in, the wheel pops off, the car breaks down, and Superman appears. He tells the women that due to their excessive weight, he's going to have to carry them one at a time to the garage. Again, this man lifts tanks and trains. Lois decides that she can't possibly live like this and does what every sane woman does and decides to crash diet, excessively exercise to the point of exhaustion, and sit in one of those saunas with her head popping out, but the weight isn't coming off. The only way to drown her sorrows is to go to a local circus where the ringmaster at the entrance asks her if she would like to audition to be the the fattest girl in Metropolis and be a freak sideshow. She goes into a house of mirrors where she can see her slim and slender previous appearance. And while she laments about it, the murderer, who also happens to be hiding out at the circus, sees her reflection, realizes that that's the woman who didn't report him for looking so average, and begins to attack her. Superman shows up, arrests the guy, and then tells Lois that he knew she saw this murder... He told the scientist to hit her with the growth ray and then let her be miserable for an entire day to keep her safe from gangsters. Lois is obviously very outraged, as I would be too, and he tells her, ah, don't worry about it. The doctor has a shrink ray. He'll hit you with it. You'll be fine tomorrow. So the issue ends with Lois making Clark take her to get something to eat, eating an entire buffet and making him pay for it. The... (laughs) This is from 1958. The sad part about this is there was a letter in the letter columns later on, because I read all of those, about a woman who read this issue, got so self-conscious about how she looked, and then dieted to the point she lost 15 pounds, and thanked the comic for doing this for her. If you're asking yourself, where can I read these? Unfortunately, they don't reprint them, because as you can see, they are quite... They're not 2023 friendly. If you happen to find one on eBay, I highly suggest picking it up or using an app where you can read it online. I'll see you next week for even more shenanigans of Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. This week we're going to cover issue number 59. It is from 1965, and the front cover has Lois Lane catching a dynasty-level slap from Superman's mother, Lara. Because in this issue, she travels through time and she home wrecks his family. Let's begin. It starts with Superman in the Fortress of Solitude, looking through the Phantom Zone to make sure his enemies are where they're supposed to be, when he sees a stranded Lois Lane. He asks her how she got there, and she tells him it's kind of a long story, and we flash back to a few days earlier. Lois is at a conference, where a man has built a tower that will prevent the destruction of Earth. She thinks this is a fabulous idea, and if she can somehow get it to the people of Krypton, they won't all die. Not really taking into effect that Superman wouldn't be sent to Earth and then she couldn't marry him, but, you know, good intentions. She finds a scientist with a newly minted time machine and she borrows a Kryptonian dress and Kryptonian gravity boots from Jimmy Olsen, who happened to have them in his closet. I I don't know why. She travels until she finds a 20-something Jarrell and Lara doing sciencey things, gives them the plans, tell them that Krypton is going to blow up, they should probably do something about that, and begins to leave. Her machine has broken down, so Lara generously says that she can stay at her place until they figure it out, and this is around the time Lois realizes that Jarrell is a dead ringer for Superman. She begins to sabotage the dates between Lara and Jarrell, 
first sending Lara to a beauty parlor where her hair is dyed green, while Lois takes her place at a dance. When Lara shows up furious, Lois tells her that she's the best dancer because she's lighter than air, turns off her gravity boots, and flies out the window. Jarrell saves her, tells her that she's silly, and Lara calls her something I probably shouldn't repeat on this show. The next date they have is at midnight at the park. Lois switches the dates on the calendar and then takes Lara's place again, hoping that Jarrell will make out with her, see that she's the better woman and want to date her, and this time the plan works. She begins dating Jarrell as he fixes her time machine and builds the tower in the middle of the city of Candor about five minutes before Brainiac shows up and puts the entire city in a jar. Lois realizes at this point that if she dates Jarrell any longer, Superman will probably never be born. The planet's going to blow up anyway. And so she leaves, telling Lara, you know what? He probably never loved me anyway. Good luck. She travels forward enough in time that a baby Superman is playing on the front lawn while still under the care of Jarrell and Lara. As she runs up to Superman and begins to hug him and kiss him in a way that the police should be called, Jarrell has finished his brand new Phantom Zone gun. He shoots it out the window as Lois is flying away, and she gets trapped in the Phantom Zone. Superman, now back in our time, releases her, only for her to think, if I had continued dating Jarrell, I would be Superman's mother. Now, this issue, and a lot of the issues, tend to be fairly cheap if you want to find one for yourself online. The most expensive ones tend to be the early ones, or the first appearance of Silver Age Catwoman, which is issue number 70, and then issue number 106, which I will cover at some point, called I Am Curious Black. Tune in next week when I cover more of Lois's nonsense. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. This week we're going to cover issue number 14 from 1960. The front cover has Lois, dressed like Batwoman, telling Superman that she's done with him and she's going to marry Batman instead. But I don't want to cover that story. I want to cover the second story that's in here. So let's dive in. Lois and Clark are working at the Daily Planet, where Lois is filling in for the advice column. Just as she's finished typing up that the only way this one girl will ever be a model is if she blindfolds the photographer, yes, that's really in there, she starts reading a letter from a boy at a training camp. Perry interrupts them and tells them he needs to go to Camp Jones because there's a retired general and he needs them to cover the story. When they show up, all of the men are very excited to see Lois, including this poor, unfortunate, short and ugly boy named Eddie. Eddie tells Lois that he's loved her from afar, reads all of her columns, and gave her a cake. She tells him thank you, but the second his back is turned, she throws the cake in the garbage and tells Clark that this cake is as disgusting as that boy's face. Eddie approaches her again and asks her if she would please join him at a dance. She tells him yes and gives him a kiss on the cheek. Clark confronts her and asks her why she would say yes to a date when she finds him unattractive, and she drags him outside and shows him a movie poster. She points at the producer's name and said, This is that boy's father. I'm going to date him, and then I'm going to get a movie contract and make Superman jealous. Clark tells her this is a bad idea. She tells him mind his own business. She goes to the dance with Eddie, where she purposely spills a punch bowl on him, and the second he leaves, starts dancing with a different soldier and claiming that she hates dancing with short and unattractive men. The men at this point begin to tell Eddie that it seems like Lois is using him, but he doesn't want to hear it. He says he can't eat, he can't sleep, he loves her, he has to be with her. Absolute twitch mod behavior. Eddie goes AWOL, before Saturday night, and runs into a cafe where Lois and Clark are. Right before the military police show up to throw him in a deep, dark hole, he asks Lois to marry him, and she agrees. The wedding is being held at the training camp, and the boy's father shows up with a ton of cameras. Just as they're about to say vows, Lois starts crying and telling Eddie that she's just using him to make Superman jealous and runs away. 
Eddie, absolutely distraught by these new by this news, gets in a helicopter and starts flying around erratically, telling his dad that he's going to go out in a blaze of glory. Superman, finally sick of all of this, flies up and rescues Eddie, bringing the helicopter back down. His father confronts him and tells him what the heck is going on here. And Eddie explains to him, well, this was all an act to impress you. A few weeks ago, I wrote to the Planet's Letter column asking how I could convince you I could be an actor. Remember you told me I had no talent? As a coincidence, Lois got an assignment to Camp Jones. She contacted me and suggested that we act out this script. She's going to play the part of a two-timer, and I'd play the role of a jilted lover who'd go to pieces when she rejected me. The father is thrilled by this boy's acting and tells him that he no longer has to go to military, that he can now be in some of his movies. Lois turns around, tells Superman that he's an idiot and she tricked him, and the producer said, yeah, that's how I know my son is a good actor. He fooled even Superman. Now, I firmly believe that Silver Age Lois Lane is too good for Superman, but there's a lot of these stories where Lois is not a very nice person. Although, in this one, she kind of did this poor kid a favor. Shout out to Eddie and his acting career. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. This week we're going to revisit issue number 59 from 1965. That is the one where Lois is catching hands on the front cover from Lara. So the first story is just as good, so I'm going to cover that, so let's dive in. It starts with Lois preventing a rooftop sniper from taking out half of Metropolis, and as he turns the gun on her, Superman shows up. As Lois is thanking him, he starts yelling at her, Stop getting into trouble so much. I spend so much time saving you when I could be performing urgent missions. I have a whole universe to protect and flies away. As Lois is crying that Superman finds her annoying and a pest, an alien spaceship shows up. Inside is a girl named Gloria and a scientist from the planet Gosmere. Everyone is happy there. She sees Lois's attempts to constantly marry Superman and she'd like to do her a solid. She takes her to see a scientist who gives her a potion that will make her invulnerable. He tells her that she will be completely free from harm, but she must drink a glass of milk a day or else she will have some severe side effects. She tells him thank you and goes on her merry way. She calls Superman with Jimmy Olsen's emergency watch and as he flies down, she blows up an entire mountain and gets crushed by the rubble. When Clark frees her, she tells him that, look, I'm invulnerable now. Now we can get married, to which he replies, and I quote, eh, I'll think about it. She has her glass of milk that night and celebrates the fact that soon she will be married to Superman. She goes about her day, getting hit by signs, getting shot by bank robbers. Nothing happens to her, and she thinks, this is great. Superman is going to see that he doesn't have to worry about me anymore. We will be wed. And she falls asleep that night without taking her glass of milk. She wakes up the next morning, and as she's having breakfast, she sees Superman on the news. A reporter eagerly asks Superman when he's getting married, to which Superman replies, Never. I am never getting married, because my wife will come to harm. Lois is immediately outraged, as I would be too, and decides, you know what? If I can't have you, nobody's having you. She goes and sees Superman and Lana Lang, and covers a news story where Superman has a bunch of weapons and inside is, is a Kryptonian gun. And he tells the girls, please don't come and open this box around me. This gun will kill me. Lois has a brilliant idea. She steals the gun. She dresses herself up to look exactly like Lana Lang, goes out in public and shoots Superman in the street with the gun. As the crowd yells, it's Lana Lang. She's gone nuts. She's murdering Superman. 
she has Lana arrested. Lois takes the stand against Lana, cries, and says she can't believe that Lana would even dream of the concept of killing Superman. Who does that kind of thing? And Lana gets the death sentence. Lois laughs to herself maniacally because she has committed the perfect crime, but she can't tell anyone else about it. The next day, she's having lunch with her sister Lucy when she has a glass of milk. All of a sudden, she snaps back and realizes that she went insane yesterday, committed a murder, got a woman framed, and decided that she's going to try to correct the problem. She goes and she tells the police what happened, and the cops tell her, yeah, right, sure, honey. To which she tells them to shoot her with a gun. She will be invulnerable. So they shoot her, but then they tell her, eh, the crime's already been solved. Lana's already been put to death. Don't worry about it. Lois, now distraught that she has killed her rival and her boyfriend, suddenly has a dizzy spell and wakes up. As she wakes up, she finds out she's in a tube, still back on the alien ship in Gosmere. She tells the scientist, and now Gloria, that she can no longer accept this invulnerability potion because it made her go crazy in her dream, and she doesn't want to risk doing that in real life. She then asks for an antidote, takes it, and goes about her merry way. Was this possibly an ad for Big Milk? Maybe? I prefer this over the Got Milk ad. So, <laughs> tune in next week for more shenanigans of Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. This week I want to cover issue number 38 from 1963. And the reason I want to talk about it is because of the letters column at the end of the issue and what DC tried to do after this issue came out. So let's dive in. It starts with Superman being summoned to the Daily Planet because they have more Valentine's letters for him than Santa sees at the North Pole every year. And as he's reading them at a superhero-like speed, he realizes that one of the Valentine's cards has been written to him in red kryptonite ink. He throws the letter and tells everybody he's got to go, and he flies out the window. As he's flying around Metropolis, he thinks, okay, good, maybe there was just a little bit of, of red kryptonite and I'm actually okay when he sees two bank robbers. As he flies down to confront the bank robbers, one of them throws a grenade and hits Superman in the face, knocking him out of the sky and knocking him unconscious. The two bank robbers make a break for it. Superman wakes up and he's in the hospital. He's trying to tell them that he's Superman, but they told him he probably has a concussion because he has multiple broken bones and they're currently giving him a blood transfusion. They couldn't possibly do that if he was Superman. As he's sitting in the hospital, he's visited by Perry, Jimmy, and Lois and Lana. They all come to give him well wishes and quiz to see whether or not he's really Superman because his face is all bandaged. Superman decides that this is a fantastic opportunity to see if Lois or Lana would still want to be with him if he wasn't Superman anymore. So instead of telling everybody that he'll be fine in 48 hours, because that's about as long as Red Kryptonite affects his body, he decides he's going to play along and see which one loves him the most. So each girl is giving him kisses on the cheek, bringing him presents, and telling him that they would love him even if he was a regular man because he's still superior to any other men they know. And he's telling them, oh, woe is me, I will never have my powers again. Perry comes in with an audio recorder and tells him that he would like to get a memoir of Superman, you know, just in case Superman croaks and dies from all of his injuries. Superman begins to recount lives of saving Lana, saving Lois, saving Jimmy, saving the universe, as the girls cry that he will never be a fantastic Superman ever again. The girls decide to show up late one night wearing matching trench coats and matching scarves, and Superman leaves on the audio recorder. 
Not knowing it was muffled, the girls started talking back and forth, deciding which one would stay with Superman and which one was going to leave. You can't see their faces and you can't see their hair. That's very important in this issue. Superman tries to play back the audio recorder, but it's all it's all a mess, and he can't make out who said that they would stay and who said that they would leave. Suddenly, Superman flashes back, and he's flying in the sky carrying the two bank robbers. He's realized that the red kryptonite just gave him a hallucination, and he's really fine all along. But once he drops them off, and he sees Lois, she asks him why he's looking at her so strangely, and now he contemplates which one actually would stay with him and which one wouldn't. So... After this issue came out, DC really, really pushed for you to write in and say, which one do you think would stay with Superman? And the letters column that ran for the next two issues after this one were really, really interesting because you had the nice fans that would write in and say, I think Lois would stay or I think Lana would stay. And then you had some very, very angry men boys, I guess, writing in and just absolutely tearing Lois or Lana apart. One guy wrote an entire list of every single person Lois has dated besides Superman and implied that she would drop him in a heartbeat. Somebody else wrote in and said that Superman is just a toy to Lois Lane and the second that he doesn't have his superpowers anymore, she's just going to throw him away. Now, the difference between the letters columns at DC for Lois Lane and all of the other girl comics that ran at the time, like Millie the Model or My Love or Young Romance, is that the advertising and the letters column were primarily girls. You would find an occasional letter from a boy, but the letters columns were strictly girls. Lois Lane has an equal number of boys and girls that wrote in, and because of that, DC ran the typical boy advertising. So you guys would have the super cool sea monkeys, x-ray specs, army men, while us girls would have grow your nails, wear some wigs, and there is an ad that literally just says, don't be fat, and then it sells you ads. And there's one that's my personal favorite, which is where you can send away for a discreet catalog to buy school uniforms for your husky daughter who wouldn't fit in the ones at the department store. So I personally believe that Lois would stay with Superman. I do. I have read multiples of these. I have seen her take poison. I have seen her take bullets. I have seen her blow up a mountain on herself, go crazy and frame Lana Lang for murder. And I think that she would stay over Lana. Plus, multiple times in these comics, Superman says that his one and only true love is Lois Lane, and the editors will write that multiple times in different letters pages to the fans. Now, if you're asking yourself, okay, so who is it? Is it Lana or is it Lois? When was this answered and how can I read it? You can't. You can't. After two issues, DC stopped trying to push this agenda rivalry in the letters column and then just completely ignored the fact that this was never a storyline after they promised that they were going to resolve it and they were going to tell you who was who. Lois Lane ran for another 99 issues after this one, and I have never found it. It doesn't exist. So we'll never know. Tune in next week for more nonsense from Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. This week we're going to cover issue number two from 1958. This has also been reprinted in the 1963 Lois Lane Giant Size Annual number two. 
that's easier and cheaper to find. And if you happen to pick up the annual, you'll also get such 1950s far-fetched hits as Lois has Kryptonite Vision, Lois is an Alien, and Lois is a Housemaid. We're going to cover Lois Lane in Hollywood. It's one of my personal favorites, so let's dive in. The gang from the Daily Planet are in Hollywood because a director named Zone is shooting a movie about Superman's life. He has encouraged everybody to audition to play themselves, which they get in except for Lois. Lois has been told by the director that she cannot emote anger, jealousy, fear, or heartbreak. Which, in fairness to the director, this is only issue two. He has no idea what she's capable of. The director tells Lois that instead she will be played by Gilda Glamour and Lois will be a prop girl and stand in the corner. Lois is very heartbroken and jealous, but really, what can she do? The first scene they set up is a disgruntled ex-employee of the Daily Planet breaks in and tries to shoot Lois with Superman throwing himself in front of the bullets. As the gun is fired, instead of blanks, real bullets fly out, hit Superman, and fly out of the window. The director yells cut and asks which moron would load real bullets into a fake gun, and Gilder begins to yell that Lois is trying to John Wilkes booth her because she is jealous of everything that's going on. Lois denies having anything to do with the real bullets. They get into a shouting match, and Superman calms everybody down and tells the director that it was probably an honest mistake and that everything is fine. The next scene they set up is going outside where Superman gets his handprints and signature in a Hollywood Walk of Fame. Lois decides to stay out of trouble by climbing on top of a high camera and watching from above, only for her to slip, land in the concrete, and splatter Gilder again. Gilder begins to yell that Lois has a real problem with her and she's about to catch hands when Lois claims that she was pushed and that she has no idea why she fell in the cement. The entire crew tell the director that Lois jumped on purpose and Superman tells Lois that she better quit messing around because she's sabotaging the movie. Lois is distraught and trying to tell them that she has nothing to do with what's going on, but they don't believe her and the director tells her that she has one more chance. The third scene that they try to set up, Lois drops off the trophy to the city to the director and the director tells her to go to the lot next door because he doesn't want her around for when the cameras start rolling. She goes next door to where they're shooting a safari movie with robot animals and leans against the lion and sobs to herself that everybody is mad at her. As Gilder is giving Superman the trophy to the city, Lois Lane, now attached to the back of a robotic lion, crashes through the scene and causes such a ruckus that Superman has to tear the robot lion in half with his bare hands. The director yells that he's going to shoot Lois and not with a camera, and that she better explain herself, and Superman begins to yell at her too. He breaks up with her and tells her that this is utter nonsense. He can't believe that she would be so jealous and heartbroken and fearful and angry while he's trying to have a successful movie and tells her to get out of here. Lois packs her bags and waits at the train for the first one-way trip back to Metropolis when Superman picks her up and brings her back to the studio. She asks him what's going on because everybody hates her and he tells her, look, I've been paying the crew members to purposely sabotage you this entire time so that I can place secret cameras to capture your jealousy, your anger, your fear, and your heartbreak, and now hopefully you can be in the movie. The director tells Lois that he didn't realize she was such a wonderful actress, even though she's trying to tell him she thought everything was real, but he says, don't worry about it, I'm going to fire Miss Glamour, you're going to be in this movie instead. Lois is delighted and everybody lives happily ever after. Fun fact about 
the DC Comics, which actually isn't related to Lois Lane, but Gilder Glamour is obviously based on Hedy Lamar, who was a famous actress of the time, and Bill Finger and Bob Kane used her as the original Catwoman. So if you ever happen to look at a reprint of a Batman number one, you'll see she's a dead ringer for Hedy Lamar. Join me for next week when Lois sabotages something else. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. This week, I'd like to take a break from the zany antics of Lois Lane, and I would like to talk to you about her artist, Kurt Schaffenberger, because hands down, he is the definitive Lois Lane artist, and I'm going to tell you why. So, Kurt Schaffenberger originally started out drawing for the Captain Marvel comics before DC acquired them. Once they bought him over, they had him draw Superman. Yes, the irony is not lost that they made the Superman lookalike artist draw Superman until they placed him on Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane. He drew it for 81 issues, and hands down, he is the best Lois Lane artist because there is not a single other artist alive or dead that has drawn her looking so deranged in every panel when she's fighting with Lana when she's mad at Superman when she's upset when she's successfully committed murder he truly captures crazy over-the-top nuts expressions that really added to the comedic timing of these Lois Lane comics Eventually, they moved Kurt Schaffenberger over to Supergirl, which he actually wasn't pleased about. He had a lot of fun drawing Lois. He also was very, very good at drawing Lois looking very feminine and pretty, and the fashions at the time he kept up with. He also decided to put her in fabulous outfits whenever there's some kind of time-traveling, Queen of the Nile, alien nonsense going on. So she always looked good. She looked good, and she acted nuts. And that's 100% Kurt Schaffenberger. Kurt Schaffenberger was eventually fired from D.C. in the 1970s because he tried to unionize the workers for better pay conditions. How dare he? Kurt went on to draw for Archie Comics, for Marvel, and for my favorite publisher you've never heard of, Skywolds, until he came back to D.C. in 1972. As much as I enjoy the artwork later on in the Lois Lanes, and I'm really not bashing on the artist from later on, he especially did a good job of trying to go with the women's liberation movement at the time after Schaffenberger left. But there is just something about Schaffenberger's crazy zany antics with Lois that just really makes the comic what it is. And if you ever see a Superman Family 164, which is from 1974, he has uh, a Lois Lane emotions of Lois Lane model sheet for everybody to look at. And it's just tons and tons of different faces of her just looking like an absolute nut job. So Kurt Schaffenberger was a fabulous artist, my favorite Lois Lane artist, and I hope that this has given you some kind of appreciation for him next time you see her trying to kill Superman or tear out Lana Lang's hair or just roll around on the street being a nut job because somebody shot at her. Just hands down, Kurt Schaffenberger is the best. Tune in next week where I'll cover another crazy Lois Lane, probably drawn by Kurt Schaffenberger. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. This week we're going to cover issue number 49 from 1964. This one has also been reprinted in 113. It's another giant size from 1971. That one's cheaper and easier to find if you would like a copy of this story for yourself. And you should, because in this one Lois kills her husband. So let's dive in. Superman is off-world doing Superman things and took Clark with him to cover the story, so Lois is all alone when she receives a phone call to meet a shady man in a shady alley, and she agrees, because that's just what you do when you're an ace reporter. 
While waiting and wondering if she's being pranked, she sees an explosion coming from a nearby warehouse and rushes to help. Inside is a man battling flames coming from a large machine. He tells Lois his name is Dr. Drolic, and he's working on a top-secret machine he can't talk about. Lois flashes her badge and says, you can trust me, I'm a journalist, and he agrees to give up the information. Drolic is working on a machine that finds the best and brightest at certain talents and tells Lois to push a button. She hits best athlete and it prints a location in Florida. She asks Drolic how will she know the guy and he hands her a pair of sunglasses I wish I owned because they are amazing and tells her the glasses will find this person's aura. Lois heads to Florida with her stylish glasses and sees an average man with a fancy ring and a crazy aura throwing baseballs so fast they would hit the flash as he ran by. She's so astounded she returns to Dr. Drolic and tells him she wants to try a different button. This time... She hits the button for Best Musician, and it gives her a location in Metropolis. Lois, and the glasses I tried to look for on Amazon, find a vagrant in tattered clothes and also a fancy ring, playing the violin so beautifully everyone has gathered around him. In fact, when a cop comes to arrest this man for vagrancy, he refuses, because the playing is just too beautiful. Lois returns to Dr. Drolic for a third time and hits Superperson, expecting the location of Superman, but instead it prints a location that I'm gonna assume is Oklahoma, judging by how it's drawn. Lois heads there and finds a man named Strongbear. Strongbear is a superman. He stops fires with his breath, he refills a river by jumping into the earth, and he falls for Lois immediately and they begin to date. Strongbear proposes and gives her a necklace that belongs to his mother and has been passed down through generations in his tribe. The necklace is pure kryptonite. And when Lois asks Strongbear if he's allergic to kryptonite, he tells her no, only lesser supermen are. And she says, okay, well, he's better than the regular superman and agrees to marry him. Lois is given Strongbear's ring and told to bathe in a sacred pool of his people. As she's down there, she notices the ring looks exactly like the same ring the baseball player had, the musician had, and thinking about it, Dr. Drolic had it too. Strongbear appears and startles her and she drops the ring, smashing it and releasing gas. Strongbear immediately transforms into a little blue goblin man and tells Lois she has doomed him. He's from a planet where all the women and children died from a meteor and all the men were turned into like Warhammer looking characters. He was his planet's last hope for a cure. They gave him a ring and that lets him transform into planet locals so he blends in while trying to find something to help them. But instead of saving his people, he saw Lois Lane in the newspaper, thought she was hot and concocted this entire best and brightest scheme to win her over. The gas coming from the ring was the only thing keeping him alive. So while he's dying, he asks her for one last kiss. Lois tells him okay, but thinks to herself, and I quote, He is the ugliest creature I have ever seen, but his love for me is so beautiful, I don't mind kissing him, and the goblin man turns into a Thanos snap. Back at the Daily Planet, Lois is wearing her necklace and ring when Superman returns. He berates her for having the audacity to wear a kryptonite necklace around him and asks her if she got that ugly ring from a junk heap, and she tells him that they have sentimental value to her before tossing them. Lois has had more more husbands than Elizabeth Taylor, honestly. She's been married several times in the comics, and more than one husband has lost his life. As I'm sitting here recording this, I can think of three other stories where the husband just dies in the end. Superman's actually responsible for the death of one of the husbands. I'll probably cover that at some point. But tune in next week for more Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. This week, we're going to cover issue number 41 from 1963. Superman's a big jerk in this issue, so let's dive in. Lois and Lana are at the Fortress of Solitude, nosing through Superman's stuff when they come across a slideshow of his greatest achievements. 
They find pictures of him and Supergirl at a parade, Jimmy getting his watch, and Superman getting engaged to a woman named Lana Lane, who is a dead ringer for the two of them. Lois confronts Superman when he returns and tells him that while she has no right to pry, again, they were nosing through his stuff, who is that woman? Why does she have their name? And is he only dating them because of her? He tells them, oh, you don't remember? Put these helmets on and I'm going to load up some old-fashioned memory tapes. The tapes show of a time when Superman took the girls to a planet named Zerm. They just got out of an ice age and the planet is flourishing. So while Superman takes care of some business, the girls should check it out for a potential story. The girls go to a zoo and immediately start touching and messing with things that have Do Not Touch written on them and start taking pictures of themselves wearing a fancy necklace that is secretly combining two animals into one around them, but they don't notice. The girls... Marvel at the weird space animals when, in a move literally everybody saw coming, they accidentally combine themselves. Superman shows up and sees the ideal combination of Lois and Lana, and she explains what happened. Superman loves that he can have his cake and eat it too, so he pulls out an engagement ring he's been carrying around for years and immediately proposes. When questioned about Superman always telling Lois and Lana any wife he has will come to harm, his reply is, I'll figure it out, and she says yes. A scientist at the colony flags down Superman and his new bride and explains that the necklace only combines things for a short time. Once they separate, they will die. But this man has a ray gun that will let one of them live, so Superman has to choose which one he's fine with letting go of, and he has about ten minutes to choose. Lois and Lana begin telling Superman he owes each of them for all the years they've spent devoted to him, and Superman says he refuses to choose and goes to find some rocks to play around with. He crushes a rock from Zerm and hits it with his laser eyes to change its atomic structure. When grabbing a random rock and squeezing it doesn't solve his problems, he decides to flip a picture he finds outside. If it lands picture side up, Lois lives. If it lands picture side down, Lana lives. He throws it so hard it melts and then tells the girls, Oh well, guess I can't choose. Lois tells Superman that if one of them has to die, it should be her. She loves him, but she understands, and all she wants is one last kiss. Lana says Lois is a showboat and liar, and as Superman kisses her goodbye, he picks up the gun to make his decision, but the girls point out it's been ten minutes and they're still alive. Superman says that random rock he was squeezing probably saved their lives, and the girls agree before heading home. When they get back to Earth, the girls can't remember the trip, and Superman also chalks that up to the magic squeezing rock. The girls take off their helmets and ask Superman which one he was going to save at that time, and he gave them a wink before telling them, you'll never know. This is hilarious if you listened to the story of issue number 38, where DC were trying to push which girl would stay with Superman. And again, this is why I would think Lois. Lois knew she was going to die and told Superman, just give me one last kiss and go live your life. I love issues with Lana in them because I feel like she makes a great comedic rival for Lois. And Superman refusing to marry each girl, but then marrying a combination of the two of them is the type of selfish nonsense I rant and rave about when I go off about how Superman in the Lois Lane comics is a terrible human being. Join me next week for more Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. This week we're talking about issue 35 from 1962. I love this story, so let's dive in. Lois is bleaching her hair and putting on glasses to disguise herself to interview a movie star that hates her. She has a fake ID calling herself Sheila Dexter, and while driving to the movie studio, she's still wearing the glasses she doesn't have a prescription for, so she drives off a cliff. 
Superman catches the car, but not before Lois has hit her head on the window. I guess wearing glasses made her miss wearing a seatbelt. Superman asks her if she's okay, and she begins to ask him who he is. When he says, Lois, don't you recognize me? She pulls out her ID and tells him that she's Sheila, not some rando called Lois, so he just immediately picks her up and takes her to the Fortress of Solitude while Sheila is smacking him and screaming to be put down. Superman runs tests on her, but none of his space minerals can help her amnesia. So while he's setting up the city of Candle with oxygen so that they can all breathe, yes, that's actually really terrifying when you think about it, she goes for a wander around. Superman has rooms dedicated to Lois, Lana, Lori, and Lila. They're full of pictures and statues and stuff like that. Sheila sees these and thinks, oh my god, he has as many girls as a sultan has wives in a harem. He's probably lying to all of them and telling them they're the only one. In an attempt to snap her out of her amnesia, Superman tries to kiss her, but she smacks him, telling him to take his playboy tricks elsewhere, and he agrees to take her home. At the planet, he tells Perry and Jimmy that Lois has amnesia, and they agree to help. Perry has Sheila look at articles of Lois and Superman trying to jog her memory, but all she says is this Lois Lane is a pest. She's always chasing after Superman. Oh, she's so pathetic. She's probably doing this as a cheap trick to get Superman to marry her. Superman has changed into Clark, and now he's helping her at work. She marvels at how kind and sweet Clark is, and she said that she would date a guy like him in an instant. He also tries to make her look at an empty envelope that says Superman's real identity that he's got hiding in a desk drawer, but she completely ignores it. Perry asks her to dye her hair black and take off her glasses to take pictures because she looks very similar to Lois Lane, and since Lois is on assignment in a different country, Sheila has to do. This does not snap her out of it at all. Superman sees that she's paying so much attention to Clark that he has a great idea. He takes her back to the Fortress of Solitude and begins to smash all of the stuff in the Lois Lane room, thinking that she's going to get angry and change back, but that doesn't work. He then goes to the Clark Kent room that he has to confuse people into thinking that Clark is his friend and decides one last Hail Mary. He tells her that he is Clark Kent and Superman and changes into both of them, snapping Lois out of it, but she doesn't remember his confession. The issue ends with Lois laughing to Jimmy that the only way she would ever find Clark attractive is if she had a head injury. I love this issue, but I think, honestly, the most uh, unrealistic thing about this issue is that you can just dye your hair bleach blonde and then just dye it black whenever your boss tells you to. Join in next week for more Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. So, I've covered quite a few of these by now, and all of them contain Lois's love for Superman. So you must be asking yourselves, why him over Clark or any other half-horse, blue goblin, robot, and or alien man? So today's story is for you. This is issue number 53 from 1964. This is the story of how Lois fell for Superman. So let's dive in. Clark has been at the Daily Planet for a month. He's eager to help solve a jewel heist, so Perry sends him to interview the organ grinder and his monkey who witnessed the heist. DC love a good monkey. Clark spots something on the building from where the crime took place. Using the old-fashioned bribery of peanuts and a string, Clark is able to convince the monkey to scale the building and retrieve the jewels. This impresses Lois, and when shown a reel of Superman saving her while she was frozen in the Arctic, she remarks that Superman uses cheap heroics to look good, and Clark uses a bag of peanuts and a string. That's taking some know-how. Lois is told to cover a charity picnic, where Superman is selling kisses. She calls him a conceited show-off when she's given tickets from a movie star who can't wait in line to smooch him. She tears them up, saying she would rather kiss Dracula, and as the girls gasp in horror, she calls him a glory hound that she will never like. 
Perry sends Lois on an assignment to a random island in the middle of nowhere to film an earthquake. He tells her Superman will fly her there. She says she'd rather swim, but after a threat of firing, she agrees to play nice. Changing into her safari costume, that's a line from the comic, Superman takes her to an island that he recognizes. This is the island a mad scientist used to make his own Jurassic Park with blackjack and giant life forms, but was murdered by them. Shocking. As they reach the earthquake, Superman falls from the sky, hits the ground hard, and tells her that he's hurt. The earthquake has unearthed red kryptonite, and Superman is reduced to mere mortal as the giant monsters start to attack. They make a run for it and find a good hiding spot when the weather begins to rain down. Superman gives her his cape to sleep and spends the entire night shivering in the cold while building an entire Ewok village out of bamboo and coconuts for them to share while they wait to be rescued. Lois is smitten by his efforts and begins to think that maybe he's nice and she's misjudged him. Superman has grown a beard overnight, so as a show of goodwill, Lois uses a seashell she found in the middle of the jungle and some soap she had in her cute little safari outfit to shave him. The Florence Nightingale effect kicks in and she kisses him. A giant snake attacks her, and Superman jumps in the way, getting bit, only for the fangs to break off. Superman says his powers are back, and they can go home. Back at the planet, Superman tells everybody that the only reason he survived was because of Lois. Giving her credit for just shaving him is the turning point Lois needs to realize that she's in love with Superman. The story ends with her blowing off Clark while displaying a picture of Superman on her desk. It took 53 issues for DC to decide that they needed to let the readers know the meet-cute of Lois and Superman. This is a fun story. It is really cute. But there are other issues of the Lois Lane comic where she is in love with Clark Kent. I can cover one of those at some point. But tune in next week for more Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane, but this week we're going to walk down a different path and I'm going to tell you about an iconic title and give you some fun facts that you can argue at your local comic shop. If I told you Timely, now Marvel, had a comic that had the first black character, one of the earliest annuals, four successful spin-offs, and was the first to feature the Marvel banner when they switched over, what comic would you think of? If you're saying anything other than Millie the Model, you're wrong. Millie the Model was 207 issues and ran from 1945 to 1973. Originally created by Ruth Atkinson, the book stars Millie Collins, her roommate Tony Turner, her rival and absolute savage, Chili Storm, Marvel's first black character, Jill Geralds, and Millie's boyfriend, Clicker, who all work at the Hanover Agency, and it's a book about life, love, drama, being models in the big city. The comic was made to rival the success of Archie and the gang, and that it did. The book was beautifully drawn, and it was this slice of lifestyle that had the readers of the time rabid. And a big part of that was the duo of Stan Lee and Stan G. The comic was really involved with its readers, and it had them submit everything from clothing ideas to hairstyles. They also had a really active letters page that was the 50s equivalent of Twitter, egged on by Stan pretending to be Millie and answering questions. No joke, Millie and Clicker broke up in one of the issues, and for several issues afterwards, hundreds of teenage girls flooded the letters page to tell Millie she's making a mistake, her and Clicker should be married, Clicker is the most handsome man in comics, and literally 114 year old wrote in and threatened the life of Millie for breaking up with Clicker. When they got back together, the letters pages were pro-Clicker and Millie marrying. To kind of satisfy the readers, Marvel made Millie annual number six in 1967 that had Tony marrying her boyfriend Bert, and then she quit the comics because Tony is a wife now, she doesn't have time for modeling. That's really in there. 
But that did not stop the fans from asking about Millie and Clicker getting hitched. At the end of the run, the comic went from romance and drama with the cutting humor of Chili mixed in to a more Saturday morning fun humor comic again to rival Archie, and the art shifted from the classic romance look to a fun and vibrant DiCarlo style that Archie Comics is known for. The comic ended in 1973, but 80s Marvel gave Millie her own modeling agency with her niece as the hottest new model. Millie showed up in a few titles, like She-Hulk and Dazzler, and there's a king-size Spider-Man summer special number one that has 23 pages where Millie and Patsy are hanging out with Mary Jane Watson, and I personally need to add that to my collection. So, some fun facts about Millie. Stan Lee wrote more Millie the Model than he did Fantastic Four. That's really true. Look that up. The paper doll cutouts that were never printed in the ad pages, they were just printed on the story ones. This was because comic book ads always had a clip out to send away for something. So if you hunt for Millie yourself, make sure the paper dolls are in there or you'll be missing plot. Other pros who worked on Millie the Model were Dan DiCarlo, Denny O'Neill, and Roy Thomas. I know Roy worked on a lot of titles, but it's really funny to me that the dude who introduced the manly Conan the Barbarian is writing comics about Millie on a date with Clicker. Jill Gerald's debuts in issue 47. That's June of 1965. That's before Black Panther, Falcon, Storm, a lot of them. If you can find a Millie 1 through 12, you will see that Clicker's original name was Flicker, but they changed it because a capital L and a capital I would bleed on newsprint to make a capital U. This is a family-friendly show, so I will let you figure that out for yourselves. If you can find issue 107, you can read about Millie working for horror artist Jack Kirby with Millie being scared of him, and it's a really funny story. Millie attended the wedding of Sue and Reed. You can find her in the background. And in 2015, the Secret Wars series had a robot named Mill E that was created as a propaganda bot for none other than Marvel's most handsome villain, Doctor Doom. I highly recommend picking up Millie if you find her back issue diving. The artwork and the stories are really enjoyable, and the letters pages are insane, and you can really see if Clicker is the most handsome man in comics. Join me next week, and we'll go back to some Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. This week, we're talking about issue 39 from 1963. The cover has Lois hurling dinner plates at Superman's head because he's keeping a safe with pictures of his exes in her house. But we're going to cover the second story of Lois turning all of her devotion to another man. So let's dive in. Perry gives Lois an assignment that he calls Superman-based, and she agrees to cover it, but the location is a beautiful redhead contest where her rival Lana is competing. Turns out Superman is the judge, I wouldn't turn that down either, and he picks Lana Lang to win. Lois is upset because Lana is her rival, and now there's a trophy to prove she's the prettiest redhead in town, but when Lana suddenly kisses Superman in front of everyone, Lois literally has a heart attack and faints in the middle of the crowd. Superman says Lois fainting is a trick to end the best world saving he's ever done, but he flies her to a doctor anyway. The doctor dismisses Superman and examines her and tells her she's fine, but she has a problem of the heart. Her love and devotion to Superman and him not returning her feelings is slowly killing her, and she needs to have her head examined. He gives her a word association test, and every word he says, she answers with Superman. So the doctor tells her that she needs to find herself a nice normal man, gives her the newspaper, and tells her to pick a guy from work. 
Perry is old and married, Jimmy is young and into her sister, so Lois decides that she will scrape the bottom of the barrel in desperation and pick Clark Kent. That is really in there. They start to date, and Lois begins to fool for Clark, because he's polite and does everything that she says. He's secretly saving the day around her as they go around, but she doesn't notice. He's confused as to why he's getting so much attention, and she confesses that she only started dating him to forget Superman, and they should just get married already. Clark politely and agreeably tells her that that's fine, but thinks to himself, oh no, Lois is going to ruin my life as Superman, and I have to get her to break up with me. He begins to sabotage her reporting of Superman by writing articles about his heroics before she can, and honestly, that works immediately. She tells him the marriage is off. She can take Superman kissing other women, but she cannot handle Clark reporting better than her. The issue ends with her showing up at the doctor's office, telling him that he's a quack and that she will never stop loving Superman. The jerk in this issue is Perry because he knew it was a beauty contest and he sent Lois there anyway and he probably could have killed her. Isn't that also more of a Jimmy Olsen thing too? Unless Jimmy is part of that myth that redheads don't find other redheads attractive? But anyway, tune in next week for more Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. We're going to skip Lois this week because it's the month of love, so let's talk about some comics I adore. If I told you the men who created Captain America and Black Panther helped give the world the first ongoing horror title, which is Frankenstein by Dick Briefers, you would think to yourself, yeah, that sounds about right. But what if I told you they were also responsible for the very first OG most successful selling romance comic? Now I have your interest. Before turning your basements into comic shrines and making your spouses question your spending habits, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby originally worked for Prize Comics, a.k.a. Crestwood Publications, back in the 1940s. While there, they produced a lot of comics, but Young Romance was their most successful creation. Told from a first-person perspective and printing real stories, their words not mine, the title was made to move away from superheroes and war and market to adults. It was an instant hit, selling millions of copies and selling through 92% of its first print run. The comic ran from 1947 to 1963, having 124 issues under its belt. It was so successful, Crestwood also published its sister comic, Young Love. It's a similar comic with similar sales numbers. Companies like Fox Features, Quality Comics, and our good Never Miss an Opportunity to Piggyback off of Success Friends over at Timely capitalized off the romance boom by creating their own line of romance comics, but nothing was stopping Young Love from selling like hotcakes. The company folded in 1963 because they had the audacity to screw over Kirby and Simon by not paying them for their romance comic work after convincing them to expand the line. They were sued and forced to pay out $140,000 to the boys. That is a lot of money in 1954, and that is $1.6 million in 2024, so good for them. Crestwood sold off Young Love and Young Romance to DC Comics. DC continued the numbering and ran it for another 94 issues. So that's issues 125 to 208. And then they ended in 1975. So, where can you read these? The DC ones you can find back issue diving. In the year 2000, uh, DC printed the Millennium Edition, which is just a reprint of 125. And actually, this month, they have a facsimile of 125. So ask your local comic shop. Eclipse reprinted a lot of the earlier Crestwood ones back in 1988. 
you can find the regular ones. I have a couple of them. They're rare, but they're inexpensive. And Fantagraphics has two best of Kirby and Simon hardcovers from their Crestwood days. I own those, and those are awesome. Young Romance isn't as wacky as Lois or Millie, but I do recommend picking up any that you find. The artwork is gorgeous, the stories are dramatic, and 1950s problems will make you laugh. Tune in next week and we'll go back to some Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. Today we're going to talk about issue 80 from 1968. This is a two-parter, so I will cover 80 this week and 81 next week. This is my favorite cover. It has Lois ripping the word girlfriend off the top corner and screaming at Superman to get out of her magazine. So, what did he do? Let's dive in and find out. Lois is told to go to a hotel room for a story, but finds a surprise birthday party waiting for her. Everyone is there but Clark, because he's away covering an earthquake, but Lois doesn't care about that. Superman hasn't shown up. Jimmy, the kind soul that he is, purchased a gift for Lois and put Superman's name on it to help her bro out. It's a beautiful statue of the Justice League, and when Jimmy says it's because they all wish her happy birthday, Lois breaks down sobbing because that's the exact gift Superman gave her for Christmas. Lois stays long after the party is over, waiting for Superman to show up, but he never does. So she decides to walk home in the rain disappointed when she hears a strange noise a block away. She investigates it and finds Superman sitting in a junk heap, smashing cars into cubes instead of showing up to her birthday party. Lois absolutely loses it and begins screaming at him that saving the planet she can understand, but playing patty cake with cars, she's over it and she's over him. He offers to fly her home in the rain and she said she'd rather cruel after this humiliation and she doesn't want anything to do with him anymore. She gets home and says her parents would be disappointed at her life choices. She calls Perry and tells him that she needs to take a little break. She empties her bank account and does what every woman does after a breakup. She buys a bunch of new clothes, she packs all of her things, she tosses everything Superman has ever given her, picks a random place on a map, and starts new. She goes to a place called Coral City. It's a town full of astronauts. She sees a job application for a nurse and decides to try out. While waiting in line, she helps a boy retrieve a ball, and it turns out he's the hot doctor's son, and he hires her immediately. She has absolutely no credentials, but okay. A rocket ship crashes during a test, and a handsome astronaut is injured. Lois gives her blood to save his life. He falls for her, and they begin to date. Back in Metropolis, Superman is depressed. Saving people doesn't feel the same because Lois isn't there, and he says he misses how annoying she is. Perry sends a depressed clock on assignment to Coral City, and he runs into Lois. He begins to third-wheel himself into her dates with the astronaut guy and starts appearing as Superman to save people in the city. He goes to see Lois at the hospital and tells her she should be grateful he's here, and she yells at him that she's happy now and she's sick of his nonsense and he needs to go away. The doctor she works for is trying to rehabilitate dangerous criminals, and while trying to give them some kind of truth serum, Lois accidentally injects herself, ends up passing out, and wakes up in a hospital bed next to Superman. Superman asks her, while she's under the truth serum, if she really wants him gone, and she tells him yes. She's just too sick of how much he's hurt her. Superman is devastated by this news and decides to be out of her life for good, only for Lois to reveal that the truth serum was just an act, but she needs to be happy and she can't with Superman. So, next week we will cover part two. 
Will Lois marry astronaut guy whose name I'm not learning? Will Superman finally tell Lois he loves her? Will the hospital find out Lois has no license to practice medicine? Tune in next week for more Lois Lane. Welcome back to my walk down Lois Lane. Last week, we covered issue 80 from 1968. Superman chose to crush cars into little cubes instead of showing up to Lois's birthday party. So she left him and started a new life in Coral City as an unlicensed nurse with an astronaut boyfriend. Will she go back to Superman? Let's dive in with issue 81. Clark is depressed. All of his news articles look like I wrote them, and he misses how annoying Lois was. He decides writing her a love letter will fix things, and he puts it into a typewriter ribbon he's crushed into a UFO and tosses it across the country into Lois's mailbox. She tears it up without reading it. She thinks it's another letter full of more excuses. Superman realizes he's messed up real bad this time and decides to rewind time by flying through the time barrier. This way, he can attend her birthday party and she won't have a mental breakdown. He goes to the car lot to tell the owner that he can't smash cars today, but the opportunity to crush things with his bare hands is just too tempting. He thinks to himself, mm, I can probably do both if I'm fast enough. But he hits the cars so hard they travel through the earth, causing giant tornadoes across the world that then he has to go and fix. By the time he gets back, he's forgotten about the party again and continues to smash cars like he's Donkey Kong. Lois finds him, has the exact same mental breakdown, and dumps him. All this accomplished was just endangering more lives. Meanwhile, Lois is living it up as a nurse. She's meeting astronaut guy's parents, I'm not learning this man's name, and working for a doctor who's trying to rehabilitate dangerous criminals with mind gas. The criminals attack the doctor, and Lois uses her years of shenanigans having to beat the ever-living stuffing out of these dudes before being held hostage. Superman shows up to help, but before he can, she's hit with the gas. When Lois wakes up, she can now read minds, and while Superman is yelling at her, she can see that he loves her. She tells him once more to go away. He says she doesn't love Astronaut Guy. I looked up his name, by the way. It's Rand Kirby. And Lois should just come home to him, and Lois can see that Superman is dreaming of a life with her. Lois gives in and now wants to go home, but she has to break up with Bland. She tries to, but he proposes, and she can't do it. Lois's new powers also let her see the future. In Superman's next mission, he's going to be hit with kryptonite. He will die, but if Bland goes up to help him, he will live, but Bland will die. Yet another man's death around Lois. She decides that she can't pick who lives and who dies, so she stows away on a rocket and floats out into space to save Superman, but just like her nursing degree, she's not trained properly and begins to have problems. Bland tries to rescue her, and he begins to die too. Superman snaps out of his kryptonite ray and rescues them both. Back on Earth, Lois breaks up with Bland, and Superman flies her home, telling her that he's glad she's back. And Lois is over the moon because she knows Superman loves her. These are some of the last issues that Schaffenberger worked on. And if you're going to pick these up for yourself, you will not see any better Lois Lane panels than the ones of her in the rain outside the junk heap screaming at Superman that she's had enough of him. They're so fantastically drawn. They really add to the drama of everything. This Lois Lane 80 and 81 are both rare ones where it's the entire issue of a story instead of just three smaller ones. They used to print three small stories and then later on, when they ran out of ideas, would print a new one with an old previous Lois Lane. This is before they started putting Rose and Thorn into the comics. Who is Rose and Thorn, you may ask? She's awesome, and I will cover her sometime. 
Join me next week for some more Lois Lane. You're listening to the soon-to-be-named network, the Lamborghini of Podcast Networks.